Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. In this last week of April, we're still a little more than two months out from the first Democratic debate. We're over 280 days away from the Iowa caucuses, and there are now 20 Democratic candidates vying for the job. That's right, 20 viable candidates. We really haven't seen anything like this in the modern era. Are voters on the brink of experiencing choice overload? We asked our favorite pundits, you. Hi, this is Alina from Arlington, Texas. I think it could present a bit of a challenge for the party to stay unified, but I'm hoping that the candidates will work together and support whoever starts to emerge as the chosen candidate. Leslie from Los Angeles. I think having a big field of candidates is a good thing because there is now a healthy competition for votes, um, which could mean that candidates will feel more compelled to incorporate what voters need into their platforms. Joan from Brooklyn. I'm not happy that there are so many Democratic candidates. It's just going to start mudslinging with the competition against each other. And do you think anyone's going to take the high road? I doubt it. My name is Fred Brinkley. I'm calling from Waxhaw, North Carolina. There could be a hundred people running for the Democratic nomination, and that would be fine. Need as many points of view as you could get. Hi, my name is Dan, and I'm calling from Cortez, Colorado. 20 candidates. It's ridiculous. 20 people in the field shows there's no collaboration, no coordinated effort to try to get a Democrat in the White House. The fact that there are two front runners who are white males approaching 80 years old shows how out of touch these people are with the American voters. This is Laska calling from Grand Rapids, Michigan. I no longer think that it makes a difference politically how many candidates are on the Democratic roster at this point. If Trump could win, anybody could. But see, that's the beauty of this thing we like to call the campaign trail. It runs straight out of Washington into the primary states, and it puts all of those candidates on display. The truth is, at this early stage of the campaign, the trail reveals a lot about the candidates and a lot about the voters who turn out to see them. It's certainly more instructive than what you may be reading on Twitter or watching on cable TV. I think they're still really excited, but I think they're also ready to have all of their choices in front of them. You might remember this voice. I'm Juana Summers. I'm a national political reporter for the Associated Press covering the 2020 presidential election with a focus on Democrats. Juana Summers joined us back in February when she first set out on the trail. She's in Houston this week, but has followed the candidates to Iowa, New York, and spent a lot of time in South Carolina. There are so many candidates running, and so many of the voters I talked to have already seen four five, six of these presidential candidates, I think there's kind of a yearning for the table to be set and for them to go ahead and make their choices and start to ask these these candidates the critical questions that are going to be so key to capturing their vote. I have to agree. I think that voters are excited about the diversity, not only sort of large number of women, a large number of um, candidates of color, but also just ideological diversity that Mm -hmm. this field represents. And that's Annie Linsky, and I'm a national political reporter for The Washington Post. Annie's been reporting from New Hampshire, Iowa, South Carolina, and is on to Nevada and California next. She told me that the more candidates appear before voters, the easier it is for people to find clarity in a very crowded field. You know, my sense is that it's going to be the debates that will be when people start to feel that there should be kind of a calling that's going on. And there seems to be a lot of patience 
for the first couple of debates to come around so that you can have a period where the candidates are actually drawing contrasts with each other. Um, I think one of the biggest ones came in the last few days where the idea of whether convicted and imprisoned felons could vote while locked up has come up. In the last few days, Bernie Sanders came out and surprised some people by saying, I think the right to vote is inherent to our democracy. Yes, even for terrible people. And Republicans pounced immediately saying that Bernie Sanders wants to make sure people like the Boston bombers have the right to vote. You're writing an opposition ad against you by saying you think the Boston Marathon bomber should vote not after he pays his debt to society, but while he's in jail. You sure about that? I do believe. Look, you know, this is what I believe. And that's a question that, you know, a number of candidates have been asked at various times, and there have been differences. I mean, Senator Warren, for example, was asked the question in Iowa at a different forum, and she said, Right now, I think the fight should be over felony reenfranchisement. Once someone has paid their debt to society, they're out, they're expected to pay taxes, they're expected to abide by the law, they're expected to support themselves and their families. I think that means they get a right to vote. While they're still incarcerated, I think it's a different question. And I think that's something that we could have more conversation about. Mm. That's where she and some others are more supportive of that right to vote. But they'll keep coming. And that is what's sort of so exciting about this phase of the campaign. What will keep coming are the distinctions and the differences among these candidates on issues and priorities. Yeah. Okay. so let's pivot to South Carolina for a second. Well, you've spent a lot of time there. What are you hearing? Sure. And Annie and I have been on a lot of these same trips down to South Carolina (laughs) talking to voters. And what I've heard is that a lot of these voters do feel an affinity to Joe Biden. It is a state that his team believes is critical to his path to the nomination, where there is a lot of still affection for him. I was in Orangeburg, South Carolina over last weekend at um, an event for Kamala Harris, and I talked to a number of voters. But one woman in particular stood out. I asked her, what she was thinking as we were still hearing the rumors that this would indeed be the week that Biden jumps in. And she told me, you know, she really liked Harris. She liked uh, Beto O'Rourke. She liked other candidates in the field. But that if Biden throws his hat in the ring, and again, this is a conversation before he announced, she believed that it would change everything, that he has Hmm. more experience, that he's been in the White House before, and that he brings qualifications to the field that no one else in this race has right now. And I think that's emblematic of what we're hearing from a lot of South Carolinians and people all over the country is that Biden is an X factor that does have the potential to reshape that race. Now, that being said, there are also a lot of liabilities. One of my biggest questions is how Biden will do with black voters and particularly black women in this climate is one of the biggest things I'm looking for in the early days of that campaign. Well, and Juana, you've also spent a lot of time with Kamala Harris in South Carolina, and she's been touting a number of endorsements, especially from African-American legislators in the state of South Carolina. Do you sense that she's getting traction from these voters or she, too, is having a hard time breaking through that Biden factor? I think she's doing actually quite well in South Carolina. As you note, she's had a number of really important um, legislative pickups from both former and current legislators in the state. And this is a place her team has been really intentional about having her visit often more than any other early primary state. Mm. She's been going to not just the urban centers of the state. This last visit was actually focused on rural areas in the state, including one place where a local pastor said no other presidential candidate, not just in this field, but ever has actually visited. So I think they're really 
really hoping to run the table there. And Harris herself has actually been asked quite a bit about the Biden factor in this race. Over the weekend, she was asked by a reporter how after the year of the woman and after voters of color and women of color showed their force in 2018, how are the two front runners in the race to, to be frank, white men in their 70s? And Harris said, it's really early. I wouldn't hang my hat on that period, I think, is how she ended it. Mm-hmm. So I think it, she herself is saying explicitly that she thinks it's too early to draw these conclusions and that she is still a big factor in the race, both nationally and in South Carolina. And just uh, pulling back then for a moment for both of you, and Annie, you can start. You all spend so much time out on the trail talking to, to voters, watching the candidates interact with voters. What are people in Washington and people sort of on the Twitterverse missing about what's really happening out there? I think that the biggest piece that really comes from being out on the trail is just the earnestness voters have when they're evaluating Mm. each candidate. People really are very honestly and earnestly going to see candidates and just hear what they have to say without kind of second guessing or without adding a political layer, which is something that we often do um, to to sort of ascribe motives as to why somebody is doing something. I mean, they really are just wanting to hear answers. And it is a very important piece of this process. I'll point to this one town hall I was at um, where this woman who is a farmer got up to ask Elizabeth Warren a question. And she um, has been really hit by um, Trump's trade war and her sort of her soybean crop, she spoke eloquently about how difficult it has been for her to sell soybeans on the market right now. In fact, impossible, as she put it. And she really wanted to hear from Elizabeth Warren what she would do on trade. And, you know, Elizabeth Warren tends to answer these questions quite bluntly. But in this case, she dodged it and she lost the voter, mm. you know. And it was quite interesting to see this woman who could come and was very open to, you know, supporting some candidate. And when she was just so disappointed that Warren would not answer that question head on and sort of said afterwards, look, I give her credit for coming out to rural Iowa. I I respect that. But when I was asking a question about the thing that affects me the most, you know, you didn't answer it. And so it's that that really left her with a bad taste in her mouth rather than any of the other sort of national issues that we talk about. I totally agree with Annie that one of the things that's always striking me every presidential cycle that I cover is the fact of how seriously these voters, particularly in these early states, take the responsibility and the Mm -hmm. role that they play in selecting the nominee. They're asking questions about those daily bread and butter issues. I think the things I hear people most talking about are things like climate change. They're worried about the earth that they're going to leave for their children and grandchildren or education and whether or not their schools have the funding they need, or frankly, whether or not their children are be able to have good, well-paying jobs that allow them to do better than their parents did. Right. One thing you all talked about the last time as well was this voters putting on a pundit hat. Annie, maybe you called it like pundititis or something, mm-hmm. that voters were trying to gauge not necessarily how they felt about a candidate, but whether that candidate could sell well in Wisconsin or Pennsylvania or one of those other battleground states. Is that s- still happening, that people are thinking about these candidates in the overall milieu of can this person beat Donald Trump and can this person do well in the Rust Belt? 
<laughs> well, I have to give credit where credit is due. The appendinitis diagnosis came from a Ben Terrace, who's a mm. colleague of mine here at the Washington <laughs> Post and a great writer. And I think appendinitis is alive and it's spreading like wildfire. I mean, it, it it absolutely is a theme in this election of, you know, who can beat Trump. And it's like you can feel and hear this tug that voters have between their heart and their head where particularly female voters will say, wow, I'd really like to have a woman in the White House. We do have this field with six women in it, but I just don't know if this country can elect a woman and will elect a woman. So I might, you know, be looking or voting for somebody else who isn't exactly who I would want, but somebody who I think could beat Trump. And I really I feel that that comes up quite frequently with, you know, with a gender divide more than anything else. I'm really glad that Annie brought up gender because that's one of the things that's always really been at the forefront of my mind when we talk about this question of electability and when I talk about it with voters. We know from social science research that often the expectation of who can win is really wrapped up in the knowledge of who has won. And in the past, the people who have won have, no surprise, been men. So I think that there's a feeling out there that when we talk about the who can win and when that's at the forefront of the mind, it automatically self-selects out these women who are out there campaigning, who many of them who have been in public life and public service for decades and are rolling out policy after policy and staking out their ground, there's a question of does that conversation disadvantage them just simply because up until this year, we've had an example of really one woman before and she didn't happen to win. Juana Summers, Annie Linsky, thank you so much for joining me and please be safe on the trail. Thank you. Thanks. The latest candidate to jump into the contest is also the man who was referred to earlier as an X-Factor, with the potential to reshape the race. My mother believed and my father believed that if I wanted to be president of the United States, I could be, I could be vice president. I'm talking about Joe Biden, of course, who on Thursday announced his run for the presidency. Mike Memoli is a national political reporter for NBC News and has been reporting on the former vice president for years. And I mean years. One of my assignments was to um, wait in Joe Biden's driveway when he was waiting to be uh, announced as the running mate. And I spent my 26th birthday literally in Joe Biden's driveway as he was announced on that day. Above all, I searched for a leader who was ready to step in and be present. A man with fundamental decency. And that man is Joe Biden. With a history like that, I asked Mike what we can expect from Biden's third attempt to reach the highest office. There's always a sense of, you know, he's being coy or there's a lot of palace intrigue about how Joe Biden thinks. My experience has been that Joe Biden will say largely the same things publicly that he says behind the scenes. Sometimes I think, you know, that people tend to overanalyze his agonizing over a decision or, you know, what he really thinks versus what he's saying publicly. And that's, I think, the biggest thing I've taken away over the years is that he really is who he is. So most folks remember what he his last job, which was as Obama's vice president. Is he running to sort of keep the flame of the Obama-Biden years burning, or is he trying to chart a new course? And do we think that the president is going to weigh in at all on his behalf? 
Yeah, these are big questions that he's confronting. What's interesting is just a few weeks ago, we had a chance to ask him some questions. One of the ones I asked was about how he views the Democratic Party today. He said just a few weeks earlier, I'm, I'll put my progressive credentials up against anybody. But does he believe that the party is, is moved too far to the left? And it was very interesting uh, the way he answered that question, which is in part to say, I'm an Obama-Biden Democrat. Chuck Todd, I think, is right that Joe Biden will have a different first name for this campaign. It's Obama-Biden. He's very much running, I think, for the third term that Hillary Clinton was in some ways uh, supposed to serve as. But that, of course, then begs the question, if President Obama himself does not come out with an endorsement, can he really claim that mantle? And we expect that President Obama is not going to endorse. In some ways, he may be overcorrecting from what he did in 2016, which was to come out all in for Hillary Clinton even before the convention. And I think President Obama is very much of a mind now that he needs to let this very big, very uh, diverse field winnow itself out. And how much pressure do they feel to show that he also has an appeal to the voters who make up the so-called Obama coalition, younger voters, voters of color? Yeah, it's very interesting, especially among voters of color. What we are going to be fascinating to see is when he uh, speaks to a younger generation who I think will be much more active in challenging him, perhaps, especially when you have some strong, viable African-American candidates in the race. If there's one thing we can remember from 2008, which was Barack Obama's numbers in South Carolina improved significantly overnight, almost, when he demonstrated that he was able to win in Iowa. It was this sense of, you know, an African-American candidate who can appeal to voters elsewhere, to a broader coalition of voters himself, that brought people who were inclined to support him in South Carolina, the first state with a majority African-American electorate, to switch over to support Barack Obama. And so that's the risk for Joe Biden, is that if a Kamala Harris, a Cory Booker can demonstrate real strength in some of the earlier voting states, that the advantage that Biden's team thinks that they have in the Deep South, in this SEC primary block heading towards Super Tuesday, can evaporate in a hurry. It seems like there are a couple of other big obstacles for Joe Biden. And in the era of Me Too, his role in the Anita Hill hearing has been raised, as well as these accusations from a number of women about physical contact from him that they were very uncomfortable with. Do you think this will continue to be an issue as he's out there campaigning? Certainly will be. I I think it's interesting. We would have expected, I think, his team to be more prepared for the kind of accusations, if you want to call them that. We've struggled with the vocabulary of how to even talk about this from Lucy Flores when she came forward. But it was clear to me that they weren't. You know, I asked the vice president just a couple weeks ago, is this going to change how you campaign? And he said yes. But the first thing he does is get to the mic and say, I just want you to know I had permission to hug Lonnie. It's going to be hard for a 76-year-old candidate who believes that he ran a certain way with great success that got him to this point that doing something different is is going to be better. So he's going to be scrutinized from the get-go. Well, that's what I wonder for for Joe Biden, because obviously, as you pointed out, he's got a 50-year record here. If all he's doing in his campaign is just addressing each and every one of these things as they come up, it seems to me he's going to be on his back foot all the time. So I guess the question is this, Mike. Um, How much does he just lean into this is me, this is Joe Biden, take it all in one package and kind of, again, make the case for this has been the essence of who I am and my career, all of these votes, all of this stuff, I'm not going to piece by piece address 
or apologize or explain all of those? I think that's a great question. I mean, it's been interesting in the past few months, in the moments where he is supposed to uh, address some of these issues in his record that are going to be problematic. The, The crime bill, his authorship of the crime bill with its very strict penalties on certain drug offenses, uh, the Anita Hill hearings, how he nods towards an apology, but never quite goes all the way with an apology. Uh, there was an event just a few weeks ago where he was talking on a stage with Jeb Bush, of all people, but a few other officials about uh, opioid addiction. And one of the local officials who was there talked about one of the successful strategies they've had as a city in reversing and addressing this issue is the fact that they don't criminalize drug addiction anymore in a way that they used to. And Biden, unprompted, felt the need to sort of defend himself. Says, I know I get beat up on the crime bill, but what the crime bill did, it put in drug courts. Yeah. It put in drug courts that a lot of, a lot of police departments won't use. A lot of states don't use. They'd rather lock people up. He, he's very proud of his record, and it's going to be very hard for him to apologize, and it's going to be hard for him to also avoid the bait from his opponents to not spend time defending and explaining his record. Joe Biden's first campaign-related event will be held this Monday in Pittsburgh. The kind of place, uh, both where there's still a lot of strength in terms of the union movement, but also a lot of voters in and outside of Pittsburgh that were Obama-Trump voters that Biden thinks he can help bring back. And so that's, I think, part of the message they want to get out very early is is reminding folks of the kind of unique appeal that he has, that they feel he has, uh, to those types of voters. But there's another city in Pennsylvania that's associated more closely with Joe Biden. Scranton, Pennsylvania. It's his birthplace. Also the home of the office. Put my stuff in jello again. And? We're not a former coal town. (laughs) We're a former coal country the way we're a former agriculture community. We haven't mined coal in 60 years. My name is Boris Krauchenyuk. I'm a reporter with the Scranton Times-Tribune in Pennsylvania for the last 31 years. In Scranton... Biden's known as Uncle Joe. He says a lot of things that your uncle might say. And almost 300 miles away from Pittsburgh, Scranton and nearby Wilkes-Barre hold a lot of those Obama-Trump voters Mike Memoli was talking about. Many of them, says Boris, feel that the economy has improved over the past two years. I think that for the most part, you're going to have people uh, feeling a whole lot better than they did in 2016. And that raises, of course, you know, politically, what's the compelling reason to go in a different direction. Scranton's Lackawanna County only narrowly voted for Clinton in 2016. Four years earlier, Obama easily carried it by more than 60 percent. I asked Boris which result was more predictive for 2020. I I think the trend is uh, that people will listen to the guy who appeals to working class voters. That was one of the most amazing things about the difference between uh, Clinton's run in 08 and 2016. In 2008, during the primary, they were talking about Clinton as the uh, candidate of the working class voter. And, you know, everybody was talking about what a problem Obama was having attracting uh, that vote. And then come 2016, it's the complete opposite. Uh, A lot of working class Democrats clearly voted for Trump. She lost those voters. And it's uh, hard to see, understand why, frankly. Did you talk to voters in 2016? Could you pick that up, that what they were seeing in Trump was something that you had not seen before for another Republican candidate? 
for another Republican candidate, yes. Yeah. I think it was the same passion was there for Obama in 08. They really felt like they wanted somebody who was speaking for them. And Trump really tapped into that. NAFTA was a big issue here, and then the immigration issue uh, was much, much more prominent in Luzerne County than it was in Lackawanna County. Luzerne County is just to the south where Wilkes-Barre is, but that's why Luzerne actually, I think immigration was a big, larger issue in Luzerne mm. County, and that's why Luzerne County went so heavily for Trump. And Lackawanna County stayed narrowly for Clinton. I know that number was really remarkable. So yeah, yeah. the turnaround was dramatic. dramatic. Very dramatic. Most Democrats narrowly won Luzerne, Wilkes-Barre, by 51, 52%. Clinton only got 39%. So that's, yeah, yeah that's a pretty dramatic drop off. Do you think that the d- Democrats in town, the, the sort of uh, office holders or other people who are active in the party, in 2016, did, did they see what was happening or were they pretty shocked on election night to see the kind of numbers that came out of Luzerne and, and Lackawanna County? Well, they'll tell you they were surprised, but I think some of them knew that, uh, I know some of them knew that prominent Democratic friends were there had Trump signs in their front yards. And that, that's just, you know, fact. They, uh, uh, I don't think they thought they were going to lose. I don't think anybody thought that Lackawanna County was going to be as close as it was, but it was. And the the turnaround in Luzerne, you know, surprised everybody. And it kind of shouldn't have. You know, nobody wanted to believe it at the time, but it happened. I know that number was really remarkable. So yeah, this, uh, Obama turnaround, won it. Yeah. The turnaround was dramatic. dramatic. Very dramatic. Most Democrats. Violent police raids on student protest encampments play out against the backdrop of a crucial presidential election. Could this be 1968 all over again? If every election is just like 1968, then no election is like 1968. Maybe this election is like 2024. Plus, what Israelis are seeing on TV on this week's On the Media from WNYC. Find On the Media wherever you get your podcasts. Early one, Luzerne, Wilkes-Barre by... 51, 52%. Clinton only got 39%. So that's yeah. that's a pretty dramatic drop-off. So um, if I were to meet voters in Scranton who had voted for Obama in 2008, 2012, had voted for Al Gore or John Kerry, what would the reason be for why they voted for Donald Trump this time around and not a, not a Democrat? Economic, uh, no question economic. They felt like he spoke to their economic needs, that they were, uh, as much as the o- Obama recovery had, you know, improved the nation and the region, I think that they had not quite felt that and felt that Trump spoke to that uh, very dramatically. The rallies were a sight to behold. He spoke here four times, twice in Luzerne County, twice in Lackawanna County, and they were all packed and raucous, just like Obama in 2008. And you did not see that when Clinton and Biden came in 2016. They played the game of uh, compressing the crowd to make it look larger than it was. So I remember one particular Friday night where Clinton spoke at a local high school, and I'm not sure why they picked a Friday night to speak in Dunmore, Pennsylvania, which was nearby, but you know they really pushed the back fencing toward the stage. There were a couple hundred people there, but you didn't have the same kind of uh, the atmosphere that you had at Trump rallies. They were so, I had never seen anything like that uh, for a Republican. So let's talk about how Joe Biden will be received back in Scranton. He's obviously going to make his growing up there a centerpiece of his campaign, connection to the working class and the middle class. 
are people excited in Scranton to embrace him? He's always done very well here. I mean, I think one of, a big part of the reason he, that uh, Obama did so well in Lackawanna County in uh, 2008 and 2012 was Biden. Things were trending well for the Democrats during those years. Between uh, 08 and 16, they had won a lot of statewide races. And Lackawanna County was always the second highest percentage in the state for statewide Democratic candidates. So that's that was part of it. But the hometown thing really kind of mattered. You know, the whole thing becomes, you know, what can you do beyond that? How broad is that working class appeal a lot of Democrats are counting on? And is that appeal enough, do you think, in a place like Scranton to get him back to the kind of margins we've seen for other Democrats in um, and around the region? More importantly, it's going to be what he does in Luzerne County, a place like Luzerne mm-hmm. County, Wilkes-Barre, where it was clear that the Democrats deserted the party in droves. You know, he needs to turn that around. Lackawanna County will be there. Places like Luzerne County, where immigration and the loss of the manufacturing base and loss of jobs and decline in the economy had really changed uh, the terrain there. That's the place he needs to concentrate, places like that. Because that swing alone in the vote between Obama and uh, 2012 and uh, Trump in 2016 accounts for the entire margin in Pennsylvania. I completely concur with your analysis here that the question of who's turning out and what parts of the state are turning out becomes really important. I think that the Trump campaign believes they can hit those same sorts of numbers in the small towns scattered throughout the state, as well as hitting that same kind of support in and around Wilkes-Barre and Scranton. Do you sense that, I don't know, some of that enthusiasm that you saw back in 2016, maybe it's faded a little bit? Uh, It's really hard to tell this far. Mm. We're still pretty far out. But, you know, I have a a car mechanic who's, I think he's a Democrat, I'm not sure. But he, (laughs) we got to talking about Trump one day, and he said, and he's a big Trump supporter, and he said, what's he done wrong? You know, now, you can argue that question, and I'm sure Democrats will say lots of things uh, in response to that question. But, but in his mind, he doesn't see a compelling reason to vote against Trump. So what is that reason? Why, with the economy roaring the way it is, do you vote against Donald Trump? And the Democratic candidate who can lay out that argument the best has the best chance of winning that race. Uh, if anything, the case for Trump is stronger at the moment. And I know a lot of Democrats may not want to hear that, but what is the compelling reason for Donald Trump to lose next year? Boris Krauchenyuk is a staff writer for the Scranton Times-Tribune. I want to play you something again that we heard earlier in the episode. AP reporter Juana Summers talking about a red flag she sees with Biden's candidacy. One of my biggest questions is what, how Biden will do with black voters and particularly black women in this climate. One huge reason why there's a question mark around Biden and black women voters is because of Anita Hill. Biden reportedly tried to rectify that situation a few weeks before announcing. He called Hill and shared his, quote, regret for what she endured when he presided over Clarence Thomas's confirmation hearings. Hill says that call wasn't enough. And Amy Allison thinks other black women voters might feel the same. This week, Amy organized and moderated the She the People presidential forum. 
which was focused on women of color and attended by eight of the presidential candidates. Biden, who announced his candidacy the next day, was not one of them. His association with Obama, you know, endears him to many people in the black community, black women included. But I will say he is going to have to answer significantly. He's going to have to explain his vote and defense of the crime bill, which was so terrible for so many of our communities. People are still serving long sentences for selling marijuana, which, by the way, is being legalized in a lot of blue states. You have all these you know, entrepreneurs coming, making money, doing the same thing that people are serving time for. He's got to answer for that. And if he does not say it was a mistake, here's how I'm going to redress the harm that was done to communities of color, I think that's going to have a big impact on his support in the black community. And I also think his treatment of Anita Hill and the effect for a couple of decades, particularly on black women, but um, women in general who fear speaking out against sexual harassment in the workplace because of what they saw happen to Anita Hill, this, this law professor. And he's got to answer for that. And I don't think it's going to be fait complete for him to be number one in this crowded field right now. How is Kamala Harris's record as a prosecutor seen by the group that was there? But do you think sort of writ large that her job as well included putting a lot of people of color in jail? This was her room to win mm-hmm. as a woman of color, one of two women of color in, in the race. And I think she spoke to the fact that, you know, we've got the, the long-term effects of a crime bill that criminalized people and how to redress the harms. She did do that. I think she stopped short of the bold plans that people are waiting for. Well, another big question that was asked of all of the candidates at the forum was, Why should women of color choose you? Ward That's a good answered, question, isn't it? It, it is. It's a very, I mean, thank you very of, much. You have it's to kind of the question. ask the question, right? <laughs> it's sort of the question. If you're coming to this forum, how are you going to win our votes? By, and, by the way, I just want you to know yeah. that has literally never been asked of presidential candidates. No one mm-hmm. who's run for president has ever had to consider that before. So anyway, go, go ahead. Go and, ahead. And, and what you're, you would argue, too, it's not enough to say, why should people of color back you? Because that's they've right. been asked those questions before. And yeah. your reason for why that's not enough to just to say, well, people of color should back me. Listen, in political parlance, when you have a reporter or you have an analyst talk about politics, they'll say black voters or they might say the women's vote. And the way that politics is explained, even the language of it, makes us women of color not visible. So we're asking that because we're saying, if you're going to win, you got to win women of color. So are you going to both acknowledge and speak to us in the unique way we're demanding, which requires you to think differently? It's really a cultural shift as well as a political shift. So that, that was really the thinking behind asking a question yep. like that. So, Beto, his answer was... You know, n- not something that, that I'm owed, um, not something that I expect, uh, something that I fully hope to earn by the work that I do on the campaign trail, by, by showing up and listening to the people that I want to serve. Do you remember how the audience responded and what was your yeah. response? I was sitting right next to him and I was like, wow, that is the most respectful way that he could have responded to that. I think the audience, uh, it was well received by the audience. Women of color are arguably the least respected group in this society. I mean, we're not a monolith. We're a lot of people within the kind of political term women of color, but we are among the, the most disrespected people. So just to have a basic statement of respect is, is really meaningful. 
And the other white male candidate who did come to the forum was Bernie Sanders. The term I heard as I was reading along about him was audible groans. And I don't know. I know it's always hard when you're the moderator to know how the crowd is reacting. But I'm wondering, did you feel the crowd react to Bernie Sanders? And if so, what was your experience of how they reacted to him and how he responded to your questions? I did feel uh, the crowd. I felt what was happening even on stage. There was a question by Sayu Bhagwani, who's head of New American Leaders. What do you believe is the federal government's role to fight against the rise of white nationalism and white terrorist acts? And how do you plan to lead on that in your first year as president? What Bernie Sanders responded with was... You know, as somebody who... I I know I date myself a little bit here, but I actually was at the March on Washington with Dr. King back in 1963. The reason that doesn't have resonance, maybe some of the groans was like, look, we're in a new era. I was not even born during that speech. And we want something now. What are you going to do now? Directly about the fact that KKK and white nationalists feel emboldened in this moment with the Trump in the White House. What can a president do? And the answer is a president could do a lot. But to not speak directly to it, I think evoked the kind of like, oh, God, really? You know, and he has to I think his campaign has really got to get it right. He's got to be able to speak directly to racism and institutional racism in a way that connects with communities of color. What's next for the forum? What do you do throughout the cycle? My goal is to keep women of color front and center in the political conversation, in the political calculus of how to win in the primary and the general. So we're going to be organizing town halls and events, particularly in swing states. We'll be in Virginia on May 18th. We're also going to Georgia, Florida, and Arizona, and most likely Pennsylvania. Instead of, like Biden says, oh, get the guys from Scranton, that's that old thinking about who he needs to win. Honestly, it's going to be the black and brown women in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, who are going to drive the politics and whether Pennsylvania is won by the Democrats. So we're going to be doing a series of events to knit together a national network of women of color with the intent of continuing to build our our voice. I really do think this is our time. The country needs us really, really badly. We don't want a repeat of what happened in 2016. And in fact, I believe women of color are going to lead us to a new progressive political and cultural era. And that is good for all Americans. Amy Allison, thanks so much for coming in and speaking with me. Thanks so much for having me. Since the redacted Mueller report came out, there's been a lot of discussion here in Washington about the topic of impeachment. Namely, should House Democrats move ahead with the process? But outside of Washington, are voters using the I word? I have to confess, I've never had a voter unprompted bring up the issue of impeachment to me on the campaign trail. It doesn't tend to come up when voters are asking candidates questions, at least at the town halls that I've been to across the country. Those are our reporters on the trail, Juana Summers from the Associated Press and Annie Lenski from The Washington Post. But that hasn't stopped some Democratic candidates, like Elizabeth Warren, from bringing it up, like at this rally in Keene, New Hampshire, last weekend. We cannot be an America that says it is okay 
for a president of the United States to try to block investigations into a foreign attack on our country or investigations into that president's own misbehavior. So I have called on the House to initiate impeachment proceedings. Joshua Green has been covering Warren's campaign for Bloomberg, and he says that her call for impeachment wasn't exactly a crowd pleaser. The overwhelming response among voters at Warren's rally was ambivalence. About 90% of voters were ambivalent about the question. They would say, most of them would say, well, clearly it looks like he obstructed justice and we don't like him and we want to get him out. But on the other hand, there's no clear way that taking this path is going to oust him from office because Republicans in the Senate aren't going to vote for this. And they worried about the political fallout, the fact that this is going to have the effect, if Democrats go forward with impeachment, of dividing the Democratic Party, unifying Republicans most likely, and overshadowing all of the other issues the candidates, and and Warren in particular, have been so eager to talk about. Let's move us back to Washington for a moment because it seems as if the Democratic leadership has sort of kept the lid on bringing up articles of impeachment. But they're keeping that lid on in part by acknowledging to their rank and file caucus members that they're going to be doing a lot of investigations. Do you think that is ultimately going to be enough to just say, well, we're going to wait and maybe hear from members Mm. of the Trump administration? I think we'll have to see what these hearings produce. But Warren, Julian Castro, Kamala Harris have come out and said, you know, we should move forward with impeachment. But you haven't seen the kind of rush to take a position that we have in certain other instances. One thing that came to mind during the Me Too scandal when some of Al Franken's problems came to light, all of a sudden the dam burst. And, you know, within about four hours, every major Democratic presidential candidate had come out and said it's time for him to go. You didn't see that sort of thing with impeachment because I think that both the Democratic leadership and a lot of of elected officials, especially those who've been around long enough to remember Bill Clinton's impeachment, know that uh, while this might be satisfying, while it may be just, it is by no means a positive political development and could very well boomerang on them and end up helping Trump get reelected. And that is the scenario that every Democrat wants to avoid. Right. Because when I talk to, especially when I talk to Republicans, their assumption is that Democrats are going to act similarly to how Republicans did during the Tea Party era, right? That Republicans were so upset about Obama, so frustrated that he was looking like he was getting reelected. And then when he was reelected, They could not contain all that energy and anger. You could tell them over and over again, politically, this isn't going to make sense. We can't repeal Obamacare. He's going to veto it. We can't do this. We can't do that. The grassroots didn't care. Does it feel like it's similar on the Democratic side? In other words, that there's energy to get rid of Trump, but it is very different from that Tea Party energy that we saw back in 2010 and 2012. I'll tell you what, it doesn't feel similar. You know, I spent the three years in the run-up to Trump embedded with the rising populist nationalist right, Steve Bannon and Donald Trump, and got a real visceral sense of what the people in that movement, both in leadership, but especially just the rank-and-file voters who gravitated to those ideas, the way they thought and the way they spoke and kind of moral absolutes, not believing the mainstream press, having their own kind of fact-set 
I don't see that reflected on the Democratic side at all. I was really surprised, again, in New Hampshire last weekend at the kind of basic political pragmatism that most of these voters seem to espouse. You know, if you're on social media or cable news, a lot of times the loudest Democrats have kind of the purest and most moralistic position. We must impeach Trump. You don't get those kind of absolutes for most voters. You know, I I think if there were a clearer route to removing Trump from office through impeachment, if Democrats controlled the Senate, then they might be more open to it. But I think they say to themselves, I don't see a path for this to be successful. And if it's not going to be successful in removing Trump, well, then why go down that road? And then that begs the question, what happens if Trump does win re-election? Then do you just take that lid off? And I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think at that point, halfway measures and pragmatism won't be satisfying responses to the majority of voters. Then you've got kind of the four alarm fire and it would be the kind of extreme reaction I would expect that we saw around the Tea Party movement eight, seven, eight years ago. Right. Um, Is your sense when you get back out on the trail that the issue of the Mueller report and impeachment is going to be way, way, way in the background? Or is the fact that we're still talking about it now and the president's tweeting about it and there may be an attorney general coming in testifying and Bob Mueller testifying going to just keep it in the front? I mean, what's been out for like two weeks now? I mean, right. it already feels like it was sliding to a back burner issue. Mm-hmm. You know, it moved up a little bit because some of these candidates have called for impeachment. But I would have a hard time believing that even six months from now, most of the candidates, when they're on a debate stage or out giving their stump speech, are going to be talking about the Mueller report or Trump for that matter. I mean, so much of the primary debate so far and so many of these stump speeches are really about how the candidates would solve public policy problems, what their priorities are. It's almost taken as a given that the largest problem facing the country is Donald Trump. You don't have to say it to these audiences. And therefore, it's been a surprisingly, to me, substantive four months of campaigning among all these Democrats. That changed a little bit with the release of the of the redacted Mueller report. But I would expect things to kind of slide back in the direction that they were, uh, not least because that formula worked so well for Democrats across the country in the midterm elections. Josh Green, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. All right, so here's my take. After the 2016 election, the media was criticized for spending too much time in D.C., absorbed in our Twitter bubbles. Voters were telling us the story of this election, but we weren't listening to them. Three years later, Washington, D.C. and the Twitter echo chambers are obsessed with talk of impeachment and Russia. And yet that's not what voters or presidential candidates are talking about in the states. My sense from listening to voters myself and to the reporters who are on the ground covering them is that Democratic voters are more pragmatic than prescriptive. The grassroots demand for Congress to start impeachment just doesn't seem to be there. Now, should Trump win re-election, I'd expect that pragmatism to give way to all-out panic and pushback. And that may change, but for now, we should take the lesson of 2016 to heart and stop trying to make the narrative fit neatly into a box we've already pre-built. The race for 2020 has a long way to go. The best way to understand where it's headed is to watch it unfold at its own pace, not the one being set by cable. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.